The biggest mistake, and I see it everywhere, is buying dark colored pans. So the, the kinds of pans you find at like your average grocery store, the really dark, sometimes they say nonstick, and it has this dark coating on it, that will mess up your baking. It really will. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we have the great Claire Saffitz stopping by for a really entertaining conversation. Claire is the author of an amazing new cookbook, What's for Dessert, and truly one of my favorite cooking teachers on the internet. We talk about how to visualize a recipe before cooking it and some of the common bakeware mistakes we are all making. We also hear a little bit about her journey from Harvard to the kitchens of France to millions of YouTube streams. We all love Claire Saffitz at Taste and hope you enjoyed this conversation. Claire Saffitz, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you in person. It's been a minute. I know. There have been many emails and Zooms and yeah. finally in person. IRL. Let's talk about the mall because <laughs> yes. we were just chit-chatting. Give me like two mall desserts that you just love. Oh, well, when I think of malls, I think about the smell of um, Auntie Anne's pretzels, yeah. the like butter, cinnamon smell, because that was in the mall that I went to growing up. Definitely. Um, and we would get them occasionally. They were so good. Oh, my God. Amazing. So good. And then I think about like a TCBY soft serve <gasps> place, which I also love. And anytime I see a TCBY, which is usually only in New Jersey, and there's like one of them left or something, yeah. I'm like, we have to stop there. I The country's best yogurt. I grew up with it as well in the Midwest. Uh, a lot of listeners may not know what TCBY is. I, If you ask me what that stood for, I have no idea. <laughs> But it's, it, it was just like soft serve. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. It wasn't even that good. It was, but it was just good. Oh, it was. It was better. See, I moved here in like '02, and then there was like tasty, tasty delight. delight. Yeah, mm. and then all of a sudden, I mean, they were on every corner, and then all of a sudden, they disappeared. Right. I think something about the ma. No, I mean the ma. Like, <laughs> did I just say that out loud? Okay, I'm kidding. I think something about the like. Um, fat in it yes. scared people? Well, no, there was a scandal where they, they, I remember this, they published um, like incorrect yes. nutrition information Yeah, that sort of showed it was like very low calorie, but it was not. No, it was. That's it. I knew there was something with fat. I feel like it was probably on Seinfeld at some point. Right, <laughs> right totally. Oh my gosh. this is, We could talk about Froyo. Are you like uh, a fan of like red mango? So I I jumped on the like Pinkberry type craze whenever that happened, probably 2010 or something like that um, or earlier. But then it just kind of fizzled out. I'm just sort of not that into it anymore. I think everyone else has that same experience. Yeah. Priya Krishna wrote a great piece for Taste maybe four years ago. I'll link to in the show notes. It's about the Asian yogurt craze. Mm -hmm. Boom and bust. It's. Yeah. I was into it. But I just think, I don't know, I feel like part of what I was into was the idea of it somehow being healthier. And then I sort of moved in this direction of like, I don't really eat. I I was just going to say, I don't really eat for health. I do eat for health, but I'm not, when I think about dessert, I'm not thinking about something that feels healthy. And so it's like, I'd rather just have ice cream. You write a head note in one of the recipes. You say, I don't write about health, exactly what you just said, Uh but then this is the healthiest recipe. I am forgetting what it is. (laughs) 
Yes, I think I chose my words very carefully for you that did. head note. I remember it was for the um, like berry crisp with yes. granola topping. And I said, as a, as a general rule, I never make any claims about health for my recipes because that's just not I'm, – I'm kind of a – I'm a skeptic of nutrition information mm-hmm. in general because it just changes all the time. It does. And I just feel like if you can eat intuitively and give your body what you want, then you, that will lead to good health is sort of my general philosophy. But what I say about that recipe is I think it probably has a better nutrition profile than most desserts just because yeah. it is very low sugar and there's like lots of seeds and nuts. There's lots of seeds like antioxidants in that. <laughs> right. Say. right. I fully agree intuitive eating and the idea like health is healthy is like this we- word that means something is – I fully subscribe to that knowledge. Right, right. Um, we're talking about your book, What's for Dessert? First question, no question mark. What's for dessert dot, no question right. mark. Okay, right. so what what's going on here with this title? Yeah, that was a discussion between my editor, Raquel, and I, question mark or no question mark, because I, I, I think I, you know, we settled on the title, which was sort of a long journey to get to the title of the book. And I was like, this is what I want the title to be. And everyone was on board. But then there was a question, is question mark or not? And I said, no question mark, because it is a question, but it's also sort of a statement. It's a declaration. It's a declaration. And what and the the book contains dessert, like it's what's for dessert is what's in this book. Like the answer, <laughs> right. this book contains that answer a hundred different times because of you know a hundred different recipes. So it is a question that my husband and I ask each other literally every night. And mm-hmm. that's that was where the idea came from. It was this. It's a declaration, but also a question, and it's sort of a, like a statement of intent. It's like a yep. way of kind of it, – it's, it's an assumption that we will ask that question of each other, and there will always be something for dessert. And so it's sort of a – so there's a little bit of a philosophy behind it of like embracing dessert. It's – there is no question of whether oh, or, no, or not – Oh, no. It's part of our meal. Right. You know, exactly. it's, it's happening. Right. Dessert is happening. Now, you know – we spoke about two years ago um, for your first book, Dessert Person, which I feel is squarely, truly a baking book. Yes. And now with your second and your follow-up, and we can talk about, like, why write a second book, mm-hmm. it feels like what's for dessert is, like, the rest potentially. But what are you trying to do here with this book? Yeah, that's exactly how I thought of it. So Dessert Person was everything was baked in dessert person. Everything went in the oven, except for, the, I think there was one exception, <laughs> and that was English muffins, which is was griddled. But every single thing was baked. And I felt like in the development of the book that there were huge swaths of ba- of pastry and desserts that I could not include, and like whole realms I had yet to explore. And so when I started to think about the second book, I really wanted to expand those horizons, and I think that as a dessert person, that's how I self-identify, mm-hmm. I I really thought that dessert was baked, and I wanted to expand my own oh. horizons. Like, when I would think of dessert, I would think of a cake or a cookie. When or, you were working at BA, this was, like, kind of the mindset you were like, it yeah. has to be in the oven. Just always, yeah. Like, yeah. it would. it's something that came from the oven. Yeah. And I felt like... But I also had, you know, sort of an attraction to and an affinity for other types of desserts, but that I hadn't really spent a lot of time exploring or developing because I was just always baking. And so I really wrote the book initially. I mean, I really conceived of it initially as a way of expanding my own repertoire as a a pastry person, as a Mm -hmm. dessert person. And then it became a way, actually, it sort of flipped around where I realized that, oh, there's so many different types of desserts here and they are capable of catering to people sort of at all different skill levels and taste levels and um, almost like life stages about like, you know, sort of kitchen setups. And there was a Mm -hmm. whole chapter on 
stovetop desserts where you don't even have to have an oven to, to make any of the recipes. So I loved that it became... Initially, it was a way I, I was writing it for myself, and then I really started writing it for the kind of community of dessert people yeah. to kind of cater to, like, all different sort the of— The non-bakers out there, there's many of them, but who want to have something sweet and something homemade. Right, totally. And so yeah. I, I look at the book as the inverse of dessert person because huh. dessert person is all baking but not all desserts. There's a bunch of savory mm-hmm. stuff. And this book is all desserts but not all baking. It's It really utilizes, like, every area of the kitchen. I love it. Uh, there's a couple cool things you're doing um, in, the, in the front. Uh, first, you're doing this matrix, which I think is genius. I think you need to buy the book just for the matrix, which— kind of breaks down every single recipe in the book with time and difficulty. How did this idea come about? I love it so much. Yeah, this idea, and I have it in Dessert Person too, so I I carried it over from Dessert Person. The idea started, it was something I'd been thinking about a long time from just working in a test kitchen at at Bon Appetit and from thinking really hard about like, what does it mean to create an easy recipe or a quick recipe? And I always felt like there was always a tension between something taking – a certain amount of time mm-hmm. and requiring a certain number of steps. It was like you could make something really simple, but you would probably have to, you know, like chill it overnight or something. Like there was always a trade-off. There was this tension between you can do something. It can either be quick or it can be easy or it can be sort of some some combination of, of you've cre- of both. you've absolutely articulated my anxiety about baking. <laughs> like right there, there's like always that tension because there's always going to be something hidden. Like a hidden trap that's going to, like, you know, bite you. <laughs> right, right. Some, right a, a one-line step in the recipe that yeah. says chill overnight. Right, chill overnight. <laughs> or, or or optional but ideal, buy a Madagascar vanilla. <laughs> you know, it, right. you got to do it. Right, or you need this pan or something you like that. You need this pan. Right. Um, so I, I thought that it made sense to plot recipes that way, to show this kind of comparison between time and difficulty because – it just it was just sort of the best way that I could think of to conceive of recipes mm-hmm. and to kind of organize them. So I, I kind of conceived of this matrix. It reminded me of the approval matrix oh, for, yeah. New York, for New York Magazine. Um, it looks just like it. It's, it's a ama- but it's like a, a very different version of it because right. it's like absolutely practical and not just snark. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I wanted it to be very user friendly yeah. <laughs> because I wanted there to be a quick way. I thought a lot about how people use cookbooks. Yeah. And I felt like people come to cookbooks with certain parameters in mind. It's like, okay, I I need to make something for this occasion or for, you know, my kids, something at school or or I want to, you know, for this holiday or something like that. And so there's, you know, you're coming to a baking recipe with some – some prerequisite of like I have this this amount of time, Mm -hmm. you know, I have sort of um, like this skill level. And so the matrix was a way to quickly – look at a grouping of recipes that you sort of could could take on. Mm-hmm. So that was just meant to be user-friendly. I really way. like that. I also like that you actually call out recipes for being easy and not easy. Basically, you have like three or four levels because yeah. that isn't really done. You also explain how the recipes work. Like these are the actual components of the recipe. Thank you for doing that. I'm going to like do that in my next book. I, <laughs> I love that idea. This is how it works. Here is like uh, exactly what you should be doing right. right before cooking. Yeah, I don't believe in misleading yeah. any home baker or home cook about the difficulty of a recipe. Because I feel like there is a there's something kind of contractual about 
someone making your recipes. It's like we've agreed, mm-hmm. like we are entering into this uh, sort of understanding where I'm providing a roadmap for you and you are giving me like your time and energy and gro- and groceries and money. Um, and I want to be very upfront about the buy-in, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if something is a little bit tricky, I, I, I want to tell you. Yeah, and baking is not the the game that you can improvise too much, though you can, and we'll get into that. But I feel like you definitely need to follow that roadmap and there shouldn't be any hidden you know, secrets. Right, right. I, I try to call all of that out ahead of time so that you don't, right, you're not, you're not surprised. You write about visualizing a dessert recipe. Now, this is in the front matter, the front of the book. I love that you set up like this kind of methodology of, of baking, but I want to get your words. How do you visualize a recipe before you actually bake it? Yeah, I do this because there are times where I have a baking project or just a recipe that I want to make or need to make or said I would make. And I have a hard time starting it. <laughs> I, I sort of am like, it just feels like a barrier. Yeah. And so I try to actually visualize the recipe um, in my kitchen. I try to think of when I like, I'm reading a recipe, I try to think like if you're making a, a mousse is a good example or a souffle or something like that. I think of, okay, so here is like the, I'm making chocolate mousse. Here is the chocolate base with the yolks and then that's going to be in a bowl and I think about the bowl that I'm going to put it in and standing in the kitchen and and putting that together and then I think about okay you're going to whip some cream and then you're going to whip some egg whites so those are going to be in two other bowls and I try to think about what bowls those are and then I literally like picture myself putting it together mm-hmm. and that creates a kind of idea of like a beginning middle and end to the recipe where I can sort of think about like all the different stages and then and then completing it and finishing the recipe yeah. and it makes it seem so much less daunting because I think when th- recipes feel really intimidating is when you kind of can't picture what you're going to be doing and what it's going to ask of you so I try to literally visualize myself making it in the kitchen and going yeah. kind of through the different steps including th- where you're actually grabbing the in- ingredients yeah. from yeah yeah I mean a lot of times the barrier just feels like getting your ingredients together so sometimes to help myself kickstart a recipe I will I'll pull out the pan often the thing that keeps me from making stuff in my pretty small kitchen is like accessing the equipment I need yeah it's gonna be a pain to like get that pan is in the back of that you know drawer or something so I'll just I'm like I'm just gonna pull the pan out and put it on my countertop and then just seeing it there it's like okay I've like kind of already begun (laughs) and then there's a sense of breaking the seal a little bit and then it's easier like you're breaking the seal I think about it with the ingredient specifically flour. Mm -hmm. I feel whenever you bring out that flour, it's like, this is a baking project. Like shit's getting dirty. Like we're getting messy. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. Messy is a better word. Speaking of, you know, cookware, bakeware, you um, really, really make a great case for buying the right stuff and also like kind of prioritizing it. But you say, I want you to kind of give us the, what is the biggest mistake we are making with our bakeware? The biggest mistake and I see it everywhere, is buying dark-colored pans. Oof. So this – and this is such a common mistake because it's so widely available. Like I I was just going to say I don't really know why this is everywhere, but I do know why, and it's because it's inexpensive. So the, the kinds of pans you find at like your average grocery store, the really dark – sometimes they say nonstick and it has this dark coating on it. That will mess up your baking. It really will. Um, I have a good friend who is a great cook, a really good baker, but she has kind of a wonky oven and a lot of her cookware is really dark and she gets so frustrated because things don't turn out. And I'm like, it's not your fault. It is it is your bakeware. Wow. This is absolutely mind blowing. 
I have so much dark bakeware. <laughs> I'm not a baker, but I have so much dark bakeware. Yeah. It's not you're not shaming anyone. This is like no. the straight facts. Yes. It's look, I don't and I don't blame anyone for having it. It's inexpensive and it's and it's everywhere. So it's so easy and to to sort of if you're looking for a loaf pan to buy that one. The problem with dark bakeware is that it absorbs heat really really quickly. And so what ends up happening is you have sort of overcooking by the time the center of of whatever the thing is you're making is done, like whether it's a loaf or a or a round cake. By the time the center is done, the the sides have overcooked and even burned. And you just don't want that. You like pull that loaf out of the pan and you're like – you're like smells so great. You're like, oh my god, optimism, optimism, optimism. And then it's like the edge of it is inedible. Hard. Hard. Dark, kind of burnt tasting. Yeah. yeah dry. <laughs> Not great things. Right. So – and then you're so tempted to blame yourself or to blame the recipe. But it's – the bakeware I think is an under-considered but hugely important variable so the dark colored stuff just doesn't perform as well. I always recommend light colored metal. You don't have to use nonstick. That's why there's parchment paper. Um, so anodized aluminum is yeah. best. And it just leads to the most even baking. And you'll get like such great results um, without that like overcooked edge. And So underdone. we're looking at anodized aluminum. But what about uh, glass? Glass has similar pitfalls actually Got it. to um, – to dark colored bakeware for similar reasons. Mm-hmm. But ra- it actually is sort of the opposite problem in that it takes a very long time to heat up and a very long time to cool down. Sometimes that can be a good thing actually for what you're making. Like glass is great for fruit pies because you actually want the bottom mm-hmm. to like bake more than, you know, than the center of the yeah, pie. Yeah, makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. Um, but because it takes so long to cool down when you're, for example, if you're making a a tray of brownies. That's a common thing in, in glass. You, it's so easy to buy like a eight by eight glass pan mm-hmm. or something. They're inexpensive and they're easy to find. You are baking a tray of brownies. You pull it out because it looks done. And then because that glass stays so hot for so long, they end up, there's carryover baking and they end up sort of over, over baking and overcooking. While they're sitting there right on the stovetop when right. you're like, think you're doing a good thing, mm-hmm. but then it sit there. Right. It's actually a bad thing. Right. So the trick for glass is just to bake at a lower temp. So if I'm baking in glass because it's the only option I have, which happens occasionally, I'll decrease the oven temp by about 25 degrees. And then that will, that helps to correct that over baking problem. Claire, let's sit in this statement for a little bit. You write this. If I had to choose one dessert flavor to eat for the rest of my life, it would be, without hesitation, caramel or caramel, depending on where you are in the nation. Mm-hmm. Caramel. Why? <laughs> this was very surprising. Really? For me, but why? Okay. Um, I don't know if I have an explanation. It just sort of is a – it's just a truth. Like it's yeah. – I just know it to be true. I feel it. Absolutely great response that <laughs> we did not need to go into like your deep, like your past with caramel, um, your favorite candies, rollos. We don't need to get into any of that. Yeah. I mean, I, there's an emotional component where it just, I just know that that's, that's what I respond to. Um, but I guess in a more intellectual sense, I think it's kind of fascinating that this very plainly sweet, like refined sugar, which yeah. has one flavor and that is sweet, can become something so amazingly complex when you cook it. Um, and so that is sort of representative of what I like about baking and pastry is that you take sort of humble or simple ingredients and then there's this incredible transformation. And it's just it just tastes really good. It does. And it's sugar and heat and Maillard and then you're there. Yeah. Right? Add some vanilla. Vanilla. Some dairy. Some dairy. Yeah, you can put dairy <laughs> caramel. Um, 
bone to pick. Like, are you not into peanut butter? I I feel like reading your books, you're just not really there. I am. Okay. I like peanut butter. Okay. I am less into some of the other nut butters. Oh. Like, I have a weird kind of thing with almond butter where I find it so saturating of the palate that I kind of can't tolerate it on its own. But I love peanut butter. Yeah, I'm I'm really teasing, and and <laughs> but I I yeah, almond butter is kind of kind of wonky. Yeah, but but you don't have a lot of peanut butter recipes. That's true. That's true. So so that's what I'm kind of getting at. Right. I think peanut butter is tough. Actually, as a mm-hmm. can be tricky as a baking ingredient because it is so dominant. Yeah. And so it works really well when you combine it with other dominant flavors like peanut butter and banana or peanut butter and chocolate. Mm-hmm. And I actually had some special requests. My brother in law is like a big peanut butter chocolate person and he was like can you put more peanut butter recipes in (laughs) i just didn't feel it so much in this book although there is one there's a a version of a banana cream pie it's my banana sesame cream tart oh cool and it has you would think i think if with a banana recipe that's also sesame i my first thought would be tahini Tahini, but it's actually toasted uh toasted sesame oil Mm. that's added to the custard, this banana custard. Um, but there's a sub, if you can't, if you don't want to do sesame or there's an allergy, you can do um, peanut butter. It's really good. That sounds amazing. I have to shout out Eric Kim. In his book, Korean American, there's a lot of sesame oil baking recipes. Yeah. Like, there's like three of them. They're, it's really cool to bake with sesame oil. Yes. It's a great, it's such a great unexpected baking ingredient because it, it has is. that kind of pungent flavor and a little bit mm. of bitterness and it like a little goes a long way, and it's pretty savory. I love I love using savory flavors. It's it's like that thing, right? It's like the extra thing that you, you know you you get. Like wow, that's like a really interesting. Right. I want you grew up in St. Louis. You went to college in Boston at Harvard, and like to get a sense of in college. You know what was food like in college for you? You weren't studying food per se, but clearly college is like a really informative time for all of us. And food did it enter the picture then? It weirdly did not enter the picture huh. at all. Like, none. No way. I didn't have – everyone pretty much lives on campus all four years. I had no kitchen. I wasn't, like, living in an apartment where I was feeding myself. We literally ate in the dining hall, like, all four years of college. Wait, really? Like, all four years you eat in the dining hall? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. You're going to get to the point, but – no, that's the point. That's the whole point. But, like, what's the food like? Is it? I mean, it's Harvard, so there's money, but, like, is it good? I remember – I distinctly remember – eating in the dining hall. There's other memories. Like I have a, you know, my memory is actually not that great about a lot of things, but I have very, <laughs> very clear memories of dining hall food. It was not great. I remember that they had at the time a kind of new initiative to like work with local farms to source, you know, ingredients for the dining hall. But it was Boston, and so it was mostly just like a lot of squash. It was just like we only had squash. <laughs> oh my god! From, from a Jeez. lot of local farms. Wow. For most of that the year, that is like a nightmare memory. It was a little bleak. <laughs> it was a little bleak. Um, I had a lot of salads, and there was like a, um, you could go to the grill and order something. Grilled. So I ate like a lot of turkey burgers and yeah. that kind of thing. You know, it was like dining hall food. Dining hall, so nothing spectacular. Um, you end up in Paris. You end up working at Spring with Daniel Rose and the team there. Um, and you've written about this a bit, and we had a great interview two years ago on Taste, and I'll link to it. But I'd like to get a sense on the podcast um, during your time at Spring in Paris. Is there like something you learned during that time that you felt like, wow, I really something unlocked inside of me? I th- yes, definitely, and I think in a number of ways I did. Not there was sort of the technical like cooking things that I learned, which were. 
incredibly foundational and really did um, begin my cooking career and, and inform me in a lot of ways. I remember like learning specific techniques when I was working there and I have, I, it's funny, I was just flipping through an old notebook that I found where mm. I had handwritten out like a lot of the recipes from spring. Um, and I was looking back through them thinking like, you know, I will use those for the rest of my life. Um, so there was that, but there was also the kind of psychological growth that happened from working in a restaurant where I didn't really want to be. And they, they knew that I was like, I, I, I came into that externship very clear about my sort of intentions and my career goals, which was not to be a restaurant cook. No. I knew I knew that that wasn't right for my temperament and and really how I wanted to spend my time. I'm someone who's like analytical and slow to process things, and I like to take my time. And I just knew that that was not the fit for me. But they were still very understanding mm-hmm. and sort of and like worked with me to to sort of like accommodate that in a lot of ways. Like I was anytime I was like anytime you want me to do prep, I'm happy to do prep versus service. It was like I liked sort of being alone in the Mm -hmm. prep kitchen. Like I remember one task they had me do was snapping the little triangular leaves off of the stalks of asparagus, not peeling them, but just those little like oh like the bark, the little barky things. Yes, one by one from each stalk of asparagus. I loved it. I was like, this is great. I'll do this for five hours. Yeah. Um because I was at least I could kind of like go into a certain state of Yeah, it's like ASMR vibes. Right. (laughs) Right. Um But all of that being said, I did learn a lot about stress management and time management and a lot about sort of what – like how I could produce good work under certain certain constraints. I mean I think I basically just matured a lot as a a person and as a – as someone, you know – like a working person in that environment. Did you start writing recipes when you were in France? Did you have it like this notebook was probably, you know, observations and recipes from the restaurant, but were you starting to think yourself, like I could actually write new versions of XYZ? Not at that time. I had actually sort of begun to do that earlier. It was, it was in the years right after college. I had about two years between my finishing my bachelor's and, and going to culinary school. And it was really in that time that I started doing what was basically recipe development, but I didn't really know it at the time. Yeah. I didn't have that, like, word to – I didn't have that way of of describing it. Um, I didn't know what it was. But I would think a lot about something that I wanted to make. And then I would do tons of research and I would look up – I would buy cookbooks or I would look online and I would sort of think about, okay, I like the way this sounds. I like the way this looks. I'm going to yeah. – you know, and I would do a lot of sort of synthesizing of different recipes. And at the time, it was like that – that was kind of – it was a version of recipe development. Um, and then I really treated my time in Paris and culinary school as a way of just kind of like learning and absorbing and um, building skills. And then it was when I left culinary school and went to grad school that I started – picked it up again. And I was sort of using all of that foundational knowledge to then – to really kind of create my own recipes. And you were, But you were studying culinary history Yes. In grad school. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's not cooking. So, I mean, it might be some cooking, but what were you – what kind of texts were you diving into? I'm really fascinating this part of your career. It, I think it's less reported about you. Like we know about your recipes and your cool uh, YouTube work. But you are a culinary historian 
or <laughs> in training. I was say, that's very generous. Your face is like, nah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I have a master's degree, so I went oh, to— Oh, stop. Well, then you got a ma- you're a master's degree holder in culinary history. There you go. Um, and it was like a one-year master's, which it was in Canada. And here You're undermining <laughs> this case I'm building about you, Claire. I mean, you said it, not me. I know. I um, but thank you. Uh, yeah, so I went to—I did a one-year master's in the history department at McGill. And I went there because there was a, there was and still is a professor there named Brian Cowan who did really and does really interesting research around food and kind of the intellectual history of food um, of the early modern era. So I was like, I'm really into this. I had just come from— a year in France where I was so interested in this question of how French cuisine became codified the way that it did. Because in culinary school, like you're going through this canon of recipes and the the way that it's organized is so specific and so defined where it was like, okay, so here's your bechamel. And when you add, what is it, Gruyere, you make a Mornay. And mm-hmm. then when you add mustard, you know, it's like everything has these, you could sort of chart this very, um, like, hierarchical. They're the mother sauces. They call them that. Right, right. Yeah. right. And, the you you know, it's, I think French cuisine is so interesting in that you add one ingredient and, you, and it becomes something else. You know, it has a different name. And so I really was, had these questions around how do cuisines become codified and how do these things start and what is the history behind this. So that's what I studied at McGill. And it was so great because there are so many interesting texts that are also in the public domain. So you can mm-hmm. go into Google Books and you can find, you know, the, the earliest cookbooks from the early modern era, from the 16 and 1700s um, that really came out of like ho- household how-to manuals. And a lot of them were written by kind of the first wave of like professionalized chefs who mm. cooked at, for big, you know, noble houses or, or royal families and wrote these books for other chefs to to learn how to cook for, you know, other fancy noble families and royalty. And they're just fascinating texts. I have a question. So these earliest texts, I've always wondered this. Are they – are these texts um, teaching people to cook for scale and for commerce or are they like more artistic endeavors like a – Da Vinci, you know, had like, you know, his was very like much, it was science and art blending. So was there like an artistic uh, kind of moment for these earliest texts? Not really. I mean, they were not written for the general population, the the earliest ones. It was really like written for other professional chefs cooking for wealthy families or houses or that kind of thing. So it was very practical. It was like, here is how you create a banquet for 100 people. Yeah. Here is how you you know, course these dishes. Here is how you present these dishes. It was very much like practical, a practical guide um, for a very high level of of skilled professional chef, you know, which were who were all male, of mm-hmm. course. And so it was really about the kind of professionalization of cooking um, and the kinds of like political and social statements that food would make in these politicized settings, which were these like, you know, sort of royal banquets and that kind of thing. Wow. So, I mean, the professional culinary uh, term, uh, terminology comes from like the army, right? That's like the whole, like the military, right? And so, like, look, were these like war plans essentially? In some way? <laughs> um, or is that like oversimplifying? I think no, I'm oversimplifying. I, this. No, I don't, it's a it's a question I don't really know the answer to. Yeah. But I just it makes me think of certain um, like certain passages or parts of certain texts. I remember, and I would have to look up which book this is from and um, and the year and the author. But I remember a text, I think it was written in English. It was Mostly they were written in English and French. 
um, because there was this amazing cultural exchange between um, England and France, um, which is such an it was just what mm-hmm. I focused on. Um, and it was a description of a banquet where, and I remember I started like one of the papers that I wrote in grad school started with this um, excerpt from this book, but it was about like you would create a a, a like a a sculpture of a horse out of, I don't even remember what material, something edible. Mm. And you would fill it with claret or like burgundy, red wine. Yeah. And then you would have the ladies at the banquet like throw arrows into it to like puncture it. And then it would, so the horse would sort of like bleed wine. And then yeah. you would fill eggs with rose water and they would throw it at the table so that it would like perfume everything. And then you would bake, I don't remember if this is the same passage, but it told you how to bake pies and then fill them with live frogs and birds so that you could open them up at the banquet and then they would like jump out. So This was, is like performance art. It's like <laughs> Meredith Monk performing, you know, some kind of cooking piece. Right. And it was, but there's a political statement behind it, which yeah. is like, I have the the money and influence and power to create these lavish um, sort of like, you know, like performances and invite yeah. people to my house, you know, so it was really sort of about social status and And wealth. showing that I can actually do this absurd thing. It reminds me of the show The Great. Do you watch that at all? No, I heard it's good. It's really good. I feel like The Great mixed with a food theme is like, you got to write that TV right. show. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about the book because um, like a little behind the scenes but I think our listeners will enjoy this. Like you shot most of your recipes. Like there are photos for most, if not all. That is insane for a baking book to or a dessert book to have so many photos. What was the photo shoot like? Yes, the photo shoot is a long process, and I, it was very important to me that every every recipe does have a photo. Oh, so it's every single one, legit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was I was very upfront with with my editor and publisher about. That was what I wanted for the book because photos are so important. If I'm looking at a cookbook and I don't see a photo for the recipe, I'm I'm left with so many questions. I don't really – I'm just not enticed to make it. You know, I'm much more likely to make a recipe where I see a photo of how it turns out. And there's also so much like non-textual communication that happens between a photo and the – the, the reader. That's how we learn different styles. We, have, we need a photo. Right. Like, I need a photo. You just sort of know, like, it's it, it informs so much of your making of the recipe when you see the final result. So that was really important to me. But, of course, it means, like, an epic amount of work. So I really can't take credit for it. I have to – I mean, the credit is all to the photographer and prop stylist and food stylist that, you know, worked so hard. So Tina Huang was the food stylist, and she had – um, two yeah. assistants, um, Veronica and Elisa, who were amazing, and there is an incredible amount of organization and time that goes into producing all the recipes. Um, and then I had um, Nicole Louie doing props, and like this is a book with unlike dessert person, this is a book with a lot of individually plated desserts. Yes, things that are like you know panna cottas that are created individually or like. Coops filled they're with escapes. pudding. I mean, they're they're, right. they're they're very prop styled in like the, a good way, in like in a cool way. Yeah. So like poor Nicole. I yeah. mean, she sourced so many individual glasses to you know to 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 plate everything yeah. and to create these really nice sort of like tableau and scenes. Um, and then I had a really ambitious idea for chapter openers, which is just that you know that photo at the beginning of every chapter where we took all the like many of the recipes from each chapter and put them in sort of this abundant like banquety scene, kind of informed by like. The 
you know, my my love of banquets from yeah. from back from grad Classic school. Classic James Beard book style, like having <laughs> right. like a, a scape, like a big cornucopia. Right. Yeah. Well, and I wanted the book to be really, really celebratory. And I wanted it to be a book that was less about solo time in the kitchen and more about sharing the end result with, mm-hmm. with people. So that led to these, you know, big, abundant photos. So the the team and then um, Jenny Huang as the photographer, like just a team that worked together so diligently yeah. and so hard for a very sustained amount of time. Yeah, I wonder. So do you are you making these desserts ahead of time and, and bringing them to set and shooting? Because, I, I mean, or are you baking like – do you have multiple ovens and are you ba- – or, or not really ovens but multiple like cooking apparatus and like making it there? Yeah, I mean a big part of the production of it is like – fridge and freezer space definitely and oven space these are the kind of more like rate limiting factors um i mean tina and her team did everything like i was i was in the middle of copy edits i told myself after dessert person i was like i am i am doing the second book so differently i am like getting everything in early i am so by the time the photo shoot comes around i can like be you know in the kitchen with the team (laughs) and helping i was like that was so not what happened of course like i was literally in the middle of copy edits, still like writing bits and yeah. um, was on set with my computer, you know. Oh, I know that feeling. It is. It is. <laughs> and like making edits as the dishes are being plated. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually the kind of way you should be doing a cookbook because it should be accurate. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It does make it dynamic in a way Definitely. that is, is actually like and leads to, I, I think, like good better work in a lot of ways. Portina had to hear me being like, hey, Tina, can you change that? Like, the yeah. recipe says this, but, like, let's, you know, do it this way. It must have been really fun at the end of the day to decide who gets what, right? <laughs> well, yes. No. But I think with Tina and her team, it's like they're so used to all the food. We just gave a lot of it away. That's I, I mean, think- like, for, like, the people in the studio or, right. like, yes. the people on the street who happened to walk by. Yeah. yeah. There was a na- – the studio had, like, a second studio space next door where we would give – we'd be like, hey, do you want, like, four pies, you know, at the end of the day? <laughs> Twist my arm. Right. Man. All right. Um, <laughs> but it was a solid two weeks of shooting. Oh, not wow. Not totally consecutive. We would have a break here and there. I think we did a week on – a week off and then a week back on something like that. But it was a lot of a lot of days in the. It studio. really shows in the work, though. It's a beautiful book, and I love the style, the design Thank you. too. Uh, I want to ask you a few other things. Um, we live kind of close to each other in the Hudson Valley. You're you're up there a bit. I live up there full time. What's that like? What's it been like? Does it? My question about living in the Hudson Valley, a little more rural than than New York, um, has it changed the way you cook at all? I know. It's so funny to learn that we're neighbors. I know we are. So we're wonderful. like live about 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. I know. We should meet at the farmer's market. I still haven't been. Goshen Farmer's Market on Fridays. It runs until the end of October through May, May through October. It is so good. SNO is there, which is a great farm. Yeah. They're like one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool to be in the Hudson Valley and to realize that these farms that you had been, where you had been visiting their farm stand at the Union Square, mm-hmm. you know, green market or your local green market, like there's a real place. Yeah, they're like food, down the road. Yeah, where that food is, right? So that part yeah. has been so great. I love, we're in an area with so many farms yep. that produces so much food, which I love. So we have near our cabin, about a mile and a half away is a, a farm that, you know, they have like a farm stand in the town, but also just on the property, like a little a little hut where you mm. can go and like leave the money in a box or Venmo and stocked with all the stuff that they're producing. So like I, I love that aspect of the lifestyle. 
and there's a dairy farm nearby and a and a place that raises Berkshire pigs oh, and cool. you can go and buy pork. I'll give Let's you the name of it. It's great. Swap notes. Oh, yeah. it's awesome. Like it's just I I love being able to cook that way. So it has helped me I think get closer to the way that I want to be cooking all the time, which is just kind of driven by the the products that are available and that are local. And so that that part is is such an incredible pleasure about living in that area. Cool. Well said. Thank you for sharing because I think I agree with you. Um, it's definitely nice to have a farm down the street and it definitely poses some challenges because availability is certainly limited. Our grocery stores are a little different than, yeah. you know, Manhattan. But um, yeah, I feel very lucky. Right. Thank you. I can't skip this question about a recipe. I was going to skip it, but I just remembered. Okay, so like you have a hot chocolate recipe, uh-huh. which, okay, can we get to the city bakery level or do you, do you like city bakery <laughs> hot chocolate? I just generally miss city bakery. Yeah. I can we ha- talk about that? Yeah. I mean like <sighs> an institution that's no longer with us and I'm, I'm very sad it's about such it. such a – the cookies and like the Brussels sprouts. Like they were doing Brussels sprouts and bacon like in 96. Yeah. <laughs> which seems funny to say out loud but like it was early. Right. Right. <laughs> and the, the – was it the pretzel croissant that oh, yeah. they were famous for? The brownie, which was like, yep. you know, it's like any any place in New York that makes it onto an episode of Sex and the City is pretty iconic. For sure. Um, so, yes, I'm I'm sad to that it's no longer with us. Um, I do remember City Bakery hot chocolate. My general complaint with hot chocolate is that it's so rich I can't really drink more than a couple sips of it. So I think the – like City Bakery hot chocolate is amazing, but it's like a great thing to split with someone. Yeah. It's like, you know, even drinking eight ounces of it is is a lot. Is, is, was my move. <laughs> I mean, like that was really, really rich, but wow. Yeah. What, like the feeling you get after eight ounces of City Bakery ch- hot chocolate, it's like I don't do drugs, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. <laughs> but anyways, continue. Right. Well, I think what's, you know, when you're at like a place with the big espresso machine and the steam wand, like you're getting something really – where you're, it's bringing out so many of the like so many flavors of the chocolate and and the milk. So I think you can get something like it at home. Um, I don't know what they were. They probably had like a chocolate base or something uh, or syrup that they were then like adding the steamed milk to or something like that. So in the book, you're just kind of combining everything on the stove, and it's a mixture of I, I can't. I'm trying to remember. I think it's just unsweetened chocolate that you're mm-hmm. um, like melting into. Milk and – but there's also like lots of options. It's like do you want to make it vegan and do coconut milk or if mm-hmm. you want to make it richer, you can throw in half and half or you know, if you want to make it less rich, which actually helps you taste more of the chocolate, you could do – you know, you could do water if you wanted to or do half and half. So um, – but the unsweetened chocolate actually was inspired by this place that I would go when I was in Paris called um, – it's like Café Viennoise or something like that. I say it in the book. Mm-hmm which was like a student hangout. It was kind of – it's like near the Sorbonne and um, had an extremely unsweet hot chocolate. That's cool. You do write about that in the book. And I, I want to know – for me, City Bakery hot chocolate was about texture. Mm-hmm. It was like, like getting that melted bar, velvety texture. Yeah. I think that comes from melted chocolate, not cocoa. So yeah. That's, yeah. So that's what you get in the book. And if you don't want it to be so bitter, you could just use like a, a nice semi-sweet chocolate. Good. To, I mean, I love that this really represents your this new book, which is like hot chocolate. Like it was not in the first book. It is here now. Uh-huh. I love it. So many great recipes. I, I encourage um, all listeners to check out the book. A few more questions. I asked Molly Bass. I just had her on like a few weeks ago. 
Um, what's it like not having all your friends around? Like, like BA was about friendship. There was a lot of really obviously you were like tight with you know many of your colleagues. And do you miss that and having an office and having like a group think and having right. a test kitchen, which you're famous for? I I don't miss the office. Yeah, at all. <laughs> to be honest, um, I'm a very very happy freelancer working from home. Yeah, very happy. I think I was never really. I don't think I was really like constituted for it, actually. Yeah, um, you, you you just went in because you had to. I didn't know any different. Yeah, but in retrospect, I'm not that good at like getting places on time and like <laughs> showing up when I'm supposed to. <laughs> I really like to be on my own schedule. Um, but of course, I miss the collaboration. I miss having people taste my food. Yeah, whose opinions I trust and value. And people who have great palates and have ideas or different, you know, perspectives to offer. Um, I developed so much of this book by myself, like truly alone. Because at the time I was developing the recipes, we had no kitchen hmm. in our house upstate. Oh. I mean, it was this little cabin that we bought. And the first thing we did was rip out the kitchen because it was it was really falling apart. And it, at first we were like, okay, like we can manage. And then it became very clear, like we cannot this, this kitchen has to go. Mm. Um, so I w- my husband was upstate a lot of the time, like managing a lot of the fixing up of the house that we were doing. And then I was in the city because I needed that kitchen space and I needed it, things just to be easy and um, like accessible. And I was alone a lot of the time. And it, my husband is a, my main taste tester mm-hmm. because he's like – He's a chef. Former yeah. chef, yeah. like just – Really, like, the only person's opinion that I really care that much about. Yeah. That's um, love right there. Yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just want him to say that he thinks everything is amazing. Oh, I'm which sure he doesn't do. say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's very honest. Yeah. So I didn't even have him. And I, I'm fortunate that I have great neighbors that are, like, but they're just so enthusiastic about everything. <laughs> so, Claire, what kind of media do you actually, what do you like doing? I do love producing all the YouTube content for a lot of reasons. One my crew that I work with who are just like good friends and people who are amazing at their job, Cal and Vinny. Um, Vince Cross was someone I worked with at BA for many years and um, I called him in on, you know, summer 2020 and was like thinking of starting YouTube, like, you know, the book, I had the book coming out and he, like, are you interested? And he's been the, the best mm. partner in the whole thing ever. Um, and Cal, his production partner, who's become also like a great friend, um, and lives in Connecticut and, like, comes by all the time, mm-hmm. you know, just to, like, hang out and help us. He's really knowledgeable gardener and so has helped us. He oh. gave us our first block of chickens. Like, it's been very supportive in our You have transition. a real chicken thing happening. I know. Yeah. There's been lots of chicken drama. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> oh, did you have a coyote or a, <laughs> uh, a bird? We had a we had a bear incident. Wait. Like a full-fledged black bear. It was bad. Uh, did they any, – did any make it? Any of the guys? Mm. We had two separate coops at the time. One was total loss. Yeah. It was really bad. Um, the, but the, the other hens were fine. I mean, probably traumatized, but, like, fine. Traumatized. It is. We've had uh, neighbors who've lost entire coops from hawks and oh, from, wow. from birds. And it's it's very disturbing what you find. Yeah. It's sad. It's You have to sort of, un, like, develop a certain relationship with loss when you have chickens because we have just so many predators and we yeah. we work so hard to protect them but it's you know there's there's some inevitability there but youtube so um <laughs> i i just have fun doing it because it's so it's just a great like collaborative atmosphere mm. and it's from my house and 
it's very like I don't feel like I there is no performance in it. I don't have to feel like I am inhabiting any other kind of like persona or or, or lifestyle than than what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And um, I have collaborators who just get that. And so it come it feels very natural. So it's just fun. Like we have a fun time together. Um, and then the other aspect of it that I really like is that it's so it's so teaching focused. That's mm-hmm. really what I want to be doing. Like I'm not creating, I don't feel like I'm trying to create entertainment. I'm not, you know, again, I'm not performing. I'm just using it as a medium for teaching, which is the, the thing that I think I'm most passionate about. It's, it really comes out in the, in the work that you love to teach. I think that that's like your fans and your, your colleagues, people who are watching you on YouTube are, are getting a lot of information. Mm. Um, and it doesn't feel like you're stunt doing some kind of stunt, which I, right. I respect that. And I love it. It's, it's why we love it. Actually, Yeah. The point to me is not to impress anybody with like, look at, look at my skills, like look at what I've created. Um, the point is to share knowledge and I've spent like an extraordinary amount of time thinking about the intricacies of how does curd thicken and yeah. like how, you know, how do you know when a cake is done and all these things. And I, and I think it's so interesting and I really just get excited to tell people like, I thought a lot about this and like, here's yeah. this cool thing I noticed and here's how you can, you know, like, you know, be aware of it in your Be kitchen. a better baker, be but, a better cook. And that's, that's cool. I mean, it's, it feels like more of the ATK Milk Street vibe than like TikTok. Right. Not on tic- t- yeah. No. <laughs> I anticipated your question. I am not you on TikTok. anticipated, <laughs> cut it off, and shut it down. I love I, that. I am not on TikTok. Claire, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a dream cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would that book be? I think I would write a book about... And this is book – versions of this have been written before. But I think I would do like a super deep dive, kind of bringing in a lot of my culinary like history and, um, and knowledge on like wheat and flour. Because when I'm baking, I really think about how miraculous it is. Like the, there is this thing that has – like can make gluten that can create everything from a baguette to sourdough to croissant to – like uh, like um, hand, you know, hand-pulled noodle, like noodles, noodles yeah. you know, and it is truly miraculous. And we owe so much of our food and diet to this thing called wheat, and it's sort of poorly understood. And the more that I've gotten into sourdough baking, the more I really can appreciate and really, like, truly realize how much of a fresh product it is or it should be. And we're so used to just seeing it as this like powdery white stuff that sits on our shelf, you know, mm-hmm. almost for, indefinitely. For right. Um, and it's kind of just like the key to everything. It's well articulated. It's also demonized by many sectors of culture and in, in publishing and in, in pop culture. And yeah. certainly we're aware of insensitivities and there are, are real diseases, but also there's some real junk bullshit science out there about it too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of laugh when I see things that are labeled gluten-free that are like, it'll be like cornstarch and it'll be like labeled gluten-free. <laughs> like tortilla and it, chips. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't understand, again, what you said, like obviously notwithstanding like people with celiac and, and real yeah. medical conditions that can't tolerate it. But um, it's not, I'm like, it's not an inherently bad thing. And in fact, it's the opposite. It is this incredible substance that is capable of so much and like i just like to celebrate that absolutely i I look forward to reading that book (laughs) thank you it's gonna be great claire saffitz thank you for joining the taste podcast 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.